Just a quick note about why we've been off air for the last couple of weeks. Just one of the members of the team was dealing with a family health crisis and that somewhat interrupted our schedule for which we apologise. Normal service is resuming this week and uh, normal sound quality will resume next week. Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. You must never, as a fund manager, stick your head in the sand saying, everybody go away, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. You've always got to expose yourself to criticism and analysis that you may be wrong. Now, those were the words of Neil Woodford, until 2019, the bullet-headed superstar of retail fund management, who supposedly made Middle England rich. Do you remember him, Neil? I do, yes. He did make Middle England rich. He was an extremely successful fund manager at Invesco, which at the time was one of the largest vendors of open-ended funds. You know what an open-ended fund is, don't you? It doesn't matter whether I do. I think you're going to have to tell us. An open-ended fund is one where you buy units in a fund and each time they're sold, the, the money goes into the pot and the assets are divided by the increased numbers of units. So it's a wonderful way of expanding the funds under management of a fund manager. Okay, so that's that's a helpful summary. I think the other thing about Neil Woodford, that quote I gave earlier, was that it turned out he had wasn't very good at following his own advice. So when colleagues at the fund management firm he set up told him he was doing the wrong thing, as they occasionally did, and did with increasing frequency in recent years, he just told them to buzz off, or worse. Woodford Investment Management made some terribly wrong decisions and shut its doors eventually in 2019. So we thought we'd take a look at the Icarus-like career, fund management career of Neil Woodford, fated as a genius for years and now seen as possibly as a lucky fool who lost a billion pounds for investors. What does it say about star fund managers and how retail funds are marketed? So I'm, I'm very pleased to say we're joined to discuss these issues by David Ricketts, author of a seminal book on the Woodford case, When the Fun Stops. Welcome, David. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me on. No, not at all. I suppose we should start by just, could you just paint us a picture of this man, Neil Woodford, where he came from, and a bit about how he built such an incredible reputation for such a long time in the British fund management world? Yeah, absolutely. So as Neil's uh, mentioned, uh, Woodford really made his name at Invesco during the uh, late 90s and really became an an overnight success when the dot-com bubble burst in 2000. I mean, if, if you were somebody who put... A thousand pounds with Woodford when he started at Invesco in 1988. You would have seen that grow to around twenty-five thousand pounds by the time he left. Twenty-five years later, so that's a return that that any investor would be more than happy with. Yeah, he was one of the few fund managers that weren't piling into technology stocks at the height of the, the dot-com bubble. He actually received a lot of flack from from commentators and other fund managers for not doing so and following the herd. Financial advisors at the time were questioning his approach. You know, why isn't this fund manager taking part in this hype around technology stocks and then piling in with the rest of with the rest of the fund manager industry? 
And instead, he, he, he stuck to his guns. He chose to stick by some of the familiar company names, the large FTSE stocks that had held him in good stead for many years. And he went on to achieve further success during the banking crisis as well. So he, he didn't hold any banks at the time. So again, he managed to escape a lot of the fallout when lenders like RBS were plunged into crisis. So by this point, you know, investors were thinking, well, this guy you know, knows something that a lot of other managers don't. He's got the Midas touch. He earned the nickname the Oracle of Oxford um, as well, which was obviously in, in reference to, to Warren Buffett's oh, the, um, sage. the Sage of Omaha. You know, he was a very influential figure. Let's not forget, he was very good at making money, but he was also, you know, in the companies that he invested in, he was also seen as a powerful investor. There are several examples where he would summon company chief execs to Invesco's office in Henley. Normally, you would expect the fund manager to go and visit the, the chief exec in their office somewhere in the city. But such was Neil Woodford's uh, reputation. Company execs were willing to go and travel to see Neil Woodford. He was a large shareholder in some companies where he managed to move the dial on certain issues. So a good example is that he was a large shareholder in, in, in BAE Systems and he spoke out about the, the planned merger with, with Airbus Eads at the time. I think the deal was, was shelved not long after that. So he was someone who had a lot of sway, a lot of power. He received a CBE from the Queen, even, for his role in the investment industry. So, <laughs> well, I didn't know Another that. embarrassing one. <laughs> a real sell signal, that was. He was head and shoulders <laughs> above everyone else. So he still, still holds on to that CBE. Well, good to know. As a sort of old world investor, he sounds like a man after your own heart, Neil. Dividend-paying kind of rust belt, absolutely strong balance sheet, cash generation, all these tedious things which are so unfashionable. Yeah, it sounds tedious, but you know it did hold him good stead. And that's a lot of people say, well, did his downfall occur because he strayed so much from his tried and tested recipe that he got he got right for so long? I think he got fed up at Invesco because basically other people were getting extremely rich. And he was just well paid. So he he left them. And such was his reputation that a lot of the funds that were managed by Invesco followed him on his name. Woodford Investment Management got off to a great start. There were different signs, were there not, towards the end of his time at Invesco, David, that he was beginning to feel a bit, there was a bit of hubris in the air. He was already changing the way he operated a bit. And taking advantage of what Neil's talking about, his sort of superstar status, to throw his weight around, was he not? Within the, the Henley office of Vesco, he was seen as, yeah, this is Neil Woodford. He is this, this kind of staff and manager, what, what he wants pretty much he can get. Funny anecdotes of, you know, for example, he was the person who, who led the call for a, a gym to be installed in Vesco's office in Henley so he could you know, work out at lunchtime with some of his colleagues. There are stories about you know the car park being full of sports cars and you know speed humps leading up to the car park having to be taken out because they they would prevent some of these sports cars from from actually entering the car park okay. <laughs> as well. So you know th- those kind of stories. You know, clearly, there's a very overbearing compliance culture within this large U.S. asset manager that maybe you know Neil Woodford's starting to feel a bit restricted and a little bit penned into a corner. So yeah, he wants to do new things. He wants to try investing in new companies. The only way you can do that realistically is to break free from the shackles of this large US organization and go it alone. When he set up Woodford Asset Management, the big fund was Woodford Equity Income, I think. Between 2014 and 2017, the performance was pretty good, easily outperformed the all share, and it looked as though the golden boy had retained the golden touch. Do we think that 
that he was just lucky in those three years before he started believing his own publicity? Or do you think that he was already being rather optimistic in terms of valuation of some of the less liquid stocks in the portfolio? First thing to say is that when, when Woodford announced his, his new portfolio in 2014, I think a few people were quite surprised by the, the names of the companies in, in that mix. You had the likes of Glaxo and, and AstraZeneca, you know, two very well-known names that, that Neil had, had invested in previously. But you also had smaller startup companies and, and healthcare stocks, a couple of them actually based very close to where he was located in Oxford. I think one of the, the um, one of the reasons he, he set up his business in in Oxford was to be close to some of these these startup companies that he could just pop around and, and always visit them as a at a moment's notice. You know, by the time he was, you know, in his, his final year at Invesco, he was overseeing around thirty-three billion pounds worth of assets across two main funds there. Now that's that's a huge chunk of what Invesco were managing overall at the time. I think back in 2014, June 2014, Invesco's assets under management were around 75 billion. So, you know, almost half of that was managed by Woodford alone. And I think there are a couple of questions about key person risk. You know, what, what is the risk to a firm having a star fund manager culture where such a huge amount of your assets are run by one individual? When they leave, the risk of that money walking out the door with them is extremely high. And I think we saw that when Woodford launched his new firm. Clearly, there's a lot of hype around him. You know, this fund was being plugged by a lot of people. When you talk about key person risk, I think if you think of it from Invesco's perspective, the key risk towards the end was probably that he carried on managing the money, given given what happened afterwards. By May 2017, I would say that is probably the peak for for Woodford and and his new empire. So his new business was managing in excess of 15 billion sterling. Just over 10 billion of that was in the flagship equity income fund. And it was just shortly after May 2017 that things started to turn a corner for, for Woodford. So the first sign of trouble really was a string of companies that Woodford held positions in started to, to post profit warnings. Now, it really was quite remarkable, you know, the timeline over which this, this occurs. So one of the first was was Allied Mines. This was a, a US company that um, that Woodford backed. That posted a, a 30% drop in one in one day. So I think a lot of it was luck, actually. He had this string of, let's say, bad luck, and the asset value starts to fall. And in fact, it's almost precipitous, really, the way it falls because of the impact of the, of the downgrades on some of its key holdings. It gets to a point where he is selling what you might describe as the sort of good solid stocks to meet the redemptions because that's the only stock that he can sell. That is a really bad sign. That not only unbalances the portfolio, it's a signal that things are going really, really badly. And it accumulates in this extraordinary exchange with the quoted investment trust, where this bunch of, let's say, second-rate holdings are swapped for new shares in the investment trust. I would have thought that was something which should have rung alarm bells. It certainly did in the press, but you would have thought that at that point, the game was really up. Yeah, that's right. I think the investors did start to get jittery and start pulling their money in, in millions, you know, tens of millions every month. And uh, Woodford was having to, as you say, sell down 
his stakes in these larger holdings, meaning that the portfolio was now made up of these unquoted stocks. One of the things that, that I think should have raised alarm bells was that actually large investors, so the likes of Jupiter, the, the large uh, city fund manager, you know, they had a large holding in, in Woodford's equity income fund, and they pulled about 300 million from it in, in 2017. So you start to think, well, if, if a large city institution is starting to have doubts about this fund manager, then what does it mean for the rest of us, the man and woman on the street? But you're absolutely right. The, the movement of those unquoted stocks to the to the investment trust, it wasn't really something that the regulator became aware of until it read about it in the press. I think actually there was a, an admission by Andrew Bailey, who at the time was the, the chief exec of the FCA, that, that maybe the FCA had dropped the ball a little bit on this one. I don't think he's ever held a ball for more than a second. So one of the important things is that once yeah, those, those large liquid holdings were sold down, if we go into the technicalities about the way the fund was structured, there's a, a rule that a, a fund the same nature that Woodford had, you can't hold more than 10% of the portfolio in unquoted companies. Now, obviously, if you're selling down large holdings in, in liquid companies, it does mean you're pushing up the the percentage of your unquoted. So yeah. he came very close to that limit. And um, in fact, he actually breached it on a couple of occasions. It's worth pointing out on the Jupiter sale that it exposes the inherent weakness of an open-ended fund. Because in theory, you can get your money out at the net asset value at any time. But when you get a big sale like that, it not only unbalances the portfolio, but it leaves the rest of the holders at severe disadvantage. And it was actually one of the things that, that led to the fund being suspended in the first place. You know, Kent County Council, one of Woodford's only institutional investors, very loyal investor, had actually invested with him for a long time in Invesco. You know, they'd start to have concerns about Woodford and some of the losses and the performance issues for a long time. They were having meetings with him and asking him to come to the council offices to explain his performance in front of uh, of council members. But yeah, June 2019 came around and they decided, okay, we've had enough. We want our £260 million back. It's a large chunk of money to withdraw from the fund in one go. And the decision was taken by Link, the authorised corporate director who was overseeing the fund, making sure that Woodford stuck by the rules. It was their decision to suspend the fund in order to raise enough capital to pay back not only Kent County Council, but other investors who would probably want to get out of that fund further down the line. Do you think that Woodford was just unlucky, or do you think he was the author of his own misfortunes? And if so, what did he get wrong? A couple of things. I, I think if you, if you speak to anyone who's sceptical of, of stock picking or you know anyone who would rather invest in an index fund, a lot of people say, yeah, it's, it's down to luck. You know, Surely you, you can't be picking the right companies a majority of the time. It's just, it's just impossible. So I think actually he'd ridden this, this wave of success at Invesco. What I think happened when he went to Woodford Investment Management is he thought he could replicate the same success, but with unquoted companies or startup companies. And I've spoken to a lot of people that, that invest in startup companies, and they say yeah, it's a completely different mindset. It's a completely different way of investing. It's quite arrogant to think that you can come from a background investing in, in FTSE 100 companies and think you can have the same success rate investing in startups. I often wonder, you know, had Woodford been given the chance to reopen the fund? So the fund was closed in June 2019. He was given a period, five, six months, to reposition the portfolio to enable that fund to reopen again. No doubt when that fund reopened, there would have been a lot of people waiting by the, the exit, waiting to get out. 
But there would have been a sizable chunk of people that would have stayed in with, with Woodford who thought maybe he could turn things around. But he was never given the chance to do that. He was told by Link in October 2019, we're not interested in, in reopening this fund. We've made the decision. We're going to wind it up and return the money to investors. I think he was under the impression that this, this fund would reopen again. And when, when Link made that announcement that they were closing it for good, he was very angry. You know, this was a, it was clear this was a decision that was not his. It was made from behalf of him by Link. Yeah, but do you, do you really think that given the way he played ducks and drakes with the rules, that Link could have done anything else? By this stage, I think investors were, were pretty much fed up with, with the whole situation. I think they were, they were sitting there looking at the losses, the performance of the fund. And I think actually Link probably took a decision, actually, this is in the best interest of investors. You hear that term quite a lot. There was a lot of press tension around it. We, we've obviously talked about the unquoted, the shifting those to the um, to the investment trust. You know, there were a couple of questions around you know, Link's role in this, Hargreaves Hargreaves Lansdowne's role in this. Maybe it's probably best to draw a line under this. That's probably the decision that Link took. So, so you're right, Neil. Maybe, maybe it was a maybe it was something they thought they were doing Neil a favour. I think they thought they were doing themselves a favour and themselves, given what was what was coming down the track. I actually spoke to somebody who was involved with the decision to terminate it. And they said that they had spent several days with Neil Woodford in an attempt to understand his system, was the way it was described to me. And after several days, they decided there wasn't a system. (laughs) The whole thing was complete chaos. And the sooner the thing came to an end would be better for everybody, including the investors. But of course, the investors, this closure has not been the end of the story for investors, because for the last nearly four years, they've been sitting around twiddling their thumbs, waiting for something to come back at the billion pounds they weren't given back by Link when they liquidated the funds. It's still a pretty, pretty terrible situation. Where do you think this is going to end up? Do you think people will get their money back? I mean, there's obviously talk now of Link itself being sold in order to fund compensation to the investors. Yeah, you're right, Jonathan. So, so this, you know, it's one of the biggest financial scandals, I think, in, in this country. I think, you know, 300,000 investors were trapped in that fund when it was uh, frozen in, in June 2019. Those investors are still waiting for answers. They're still waiting for money to be paid back. You know, a lot of those investors were retirees, people that rely on this money for you know, to fund their retirement. I wonder how many of those those retirees are will be alive to see the end of this saga. But you're absolutely right. This the FCA's investigation into the events that, that led up to that suspension is still ongoing, nearly four years on. The updates from the FCA have been very, very scant and, and infrequent. We've we've had sort of various statements from the CEO saying, you know, it's top priority, we're working on this. I suppose the only meaningful updates we've had more recently when the FCA issued what's known as a draft warning notice to Link, essentially telling them that we are looking at the the issues surrounding the the fund suspension and we may fine you £50 million for oversight failures. And that's something that reflects Link's inability to manage liquidity in, in the fund. Just so we're clear, all the action that the FCA is taking about this is directed at Link a company which was set up to administer the fund and not Woodford and his pals who were the shareholders and took 100 million odd in dividends as well as their very large wages and other stuff out of the company during its life. Maybe to explain Link, uh, what's known as the Authorised Corporate Director or the, the ACD, they are the body that is answerable and regulated by the FCA. So in effect, 
although Woodford was the fund manager of the Woodford Equity Income Fund, in effect, he was employed by Link. They could, they could have sacked him at any moment and replaced him with another manager if they wanted to. So they were the, the entity that, that's answerable to the FCA. This is why you're seeing a lot of publicity and coverage now around Link and the FCA, because Link are on the hook. Woodford and his business partner, Craig Newman, who, as you say, took tens of, of millions of pounds in dividends from the business, they are not subject to the same regulatory action that Link is at the moment. That's not to say that further down the line, the FCA may take action against them in the sense they may be banned from holding certain roles in, in, in fund management companies or, or directorships, etc. But for the time being, all the focus is on Link. And actually, a lot of the legal action is also focused on Link. So there are two law firms, at least two law firms, who are acting on behalf of investors who are suing Link, who are looking to yeah, get compensation but I should add as well that the link has, they are still selling down some of those unquoted or they're selling off some of the unquoted holdings in the fund. There, there is a basket that still remains there that they're still working on. About two and a half billion has been paid back to investors by link so far, but this has been going on for, for years. It's also worth pointing out when people say, you know, getting their money back, they're not going to get their money back in terms of how much they put in they will probably get a proportion of that after a very long legal process. And it's not at all clear whether Link is actually in a position to pay anything very much in terms of their contribution to the losses, because uh, they're not a large organisation in the UK. And basically, they're not far short of just being a straw man. In addition to what Neil said, it does seem to me very odd that that the owners of Woodford Investment Management can take dividends out of the business and somehow they're not on the hook for anything that has happened with this entity that they owned, whereas the administrator, an organisation which was a sort of fee-taking entity, should be deemed, I'm not in any way entering a defence on behalf of Link, but I'm just saying I find it odd that everyone who was a party to this fiasco isn't obliged to disgorge their profits. Well, the setup of these sort of rather strange non-director directors mm. appointed to, uh, to look after open-ended funds, it was not ever designed to take this sort of strain. Basically, as far as I can see, in many cases, the occupants of the of those posts were just it was just sinecures yeah unlike i have to say as speaking from personal experience the directors of closed-ended funds who are answerable under the companies act along with everything else so it's another reason in my view to avoid open-ended funds are you launching collins investment trust Neil, <laughs> is this an extended commercial? <laughs> I think I think one of the one of the, the pitfalls that has been highlighted by this this whole episode, and I think you, you're right, Neil. One of the things that, that that was highlighted was the fact that investors expected to get their money back at a moment's notice. You know, the fact that you invest in a, an open ended fund with the promise of daily liquidity. I think one of the one of the lessons that that's been learned from all this, an interestingly announcement made by by one of Woodford's investors a couple of weeks ago, Jupiter, their CEO saying from now on. We are not going to make any new investments in unquoted companies. Our funds will not make any new investments. Yeah, I have to say, Jupiter's track record is awful. The sound of a vanishing horse with a stable door gently shutting behind it. <laughs> One of the things about Woodford is Woodford's 
incentives were very much based around how much money came through the door. He had an incentive to basically market his fund as hard as possible. Is there any sign that the world has has now accepted the idea that incentivizing fund managers to bring in money at all costs is not necessarily the best method <laughs> of running running a fund management business. I mean, there are a lot of fund managers who consistently fail to beat benchmarks that are getting paid very large sums of money. We're talking, you know, millions of pounds. I mean, it's probably more the case that a firm that's been set up by a, a staff fund manager. So, you know, the likes of Woodford, he was able to pay himself whatever he wanted, really. Terry Smith, Fundsmith, another good, good example. I think, you know, last year he took home... 30 odd million quid rather more than his customer he wouldn't be able to do that probably at a large organization that was that was paying his his salary what i do think's happened is you're seeing large asset management companies now move away from this staff and manager culture and are placing more emphasis on teams and key individuals rather than just one person so there are lots of high rollers still around people getting paid huge sums of money i don't think there's there's any way of getting away from that but i do think a lot of firms now have realized post woodford yeah, we can't just have one name on the door or one name on a fund. We need to start talking about the team approach to this investment because we realise you know, the risk if this person leaves, a load of money is going to walk out the it door. stays if they do crazy stuff. <laughs> I think if you're if you're skirting with investing in a fund manager, you know you need to be looking at the overall organisation and the the structure of that firm and the support network, everything else, not just you know, what is this one person doing with this this one fund i think that's that's pretty key yeah i would say an open-ended fund is one which can close on you without warning a closed-ended fund is one that you can always sell although you may not like the price you're being offered that was a long time in finance with jonathan ford and neil collins production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news if you enjoyed the show please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us the closed ended fund is okay. one that can Collins investment sorry trust. No, hang on I'll start again <laughs> an open ended fund application forms fund. are available oh god <laughs> Look, before I go on <laughs>